Blog Talk Radio. Hello, America. This is Billy Jones, author of Everyday Folks Books and creator of Everyday Folks Radio. Thank you for listening to my show, BJ Speaks, an interview with. On this show, I'd like to celebrate the ordinary yet extraordinary individuals who often don't get the opportunity to have their stories told. These come from various walks of life, work in various industries, and above all, they have incredible tales that deserve listeners. And today we have a phenomenal guest who I know very well, truly the word, the essence of survival, of perseverance, and also of truth. But before we speak to him, I'd like to remind you how you can speak to us <clears throat> today, actually. Actually, there's a cold of allergies. So definitely we're going to make this show happen. If you'd like to call in at any time to speak to me or my esteemed guests, you may do so by calling in at 347-539-5372. If you're shy, be sure to email us. You're welcome to do so. Our inbox is standing by at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. That is at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. This past month has been an awesome month, and I'd like to thank all of you for your continued support in listening to Everyday Folks Radio. Last week's session with my dear colleague, Professor Silvia Orozco, we hit an unprecedented 1,078 listeners. Each week, because of you, all of you listeners, the show is getting, is catching on, and people are listening. They're tuning in to hear, hear these amazing stories. And a ball to make a contribution in the name of, uh, in the name of truth. So I want to thank you, and I'm sure if, if Adolfo and Sylvia are listening, I want to thank them as well for a fun show, a show that talked about love, survival, and all that other good stuff. And if you missed the show, you can always visit my author page at BillyPaulJones.com and tune into the archive by clicking on the blog link at the top of the page. And you're welcome to listen to that show or any of the other previously. Uh, broadcast shows over the past two months. So with that said, we'll go ahead and get started with our guest. I'm privileged to bring in a man who, for the past two years, I've had the pleasure of working with also an individual. And if you have a chance to read it, that was on my blog, whatever it's worth surviving and coping with loss. And his memoir is to, to his world. Smart with pain, perseverance, and resilience. As a college professor and administrator, faculty have potentials. And I have to add this. I had the pleasure of reading his work over the past week. Put it down. I couldn't help but sit there and think of my own story and realize that so much of what we don't know of one another, they truly, we truly walk a similar path in different aspects. So if you're listening to this, I think you're in for a true treat. He is a dear colleague and a friend. Welcome to the show, Dr. Larry Johnson. How are you today? 
I'm doing great, Billy. Thank you so much. I'm so humbled. You are welcome. And I have to add, just alone, I don't know if I shared it with you, just alone, just the moment I put out your post on social media, all these likes started coming in, likes and comments. So I want to first say thank you for <laughs> thank you for the commitment and for the connection there because you're also you are embody what we're about here at Everyday Folks Radio. So I thank you so much for your time and I have tons of questions for you that relate not only to your book but also about you because truly you've done some remarkable stuff and there's so much more to come. So are you ready? I am. I am. So just for those of you who are listening now, if you'd like to call in at any time, our our guest line is open. The line again is 347-539-5372. Again, that line is 347-539-5372. And you may email your comments as well to everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, that is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. So, Larry, your your story, you, you currently work at Broward College, where you and I both are, are colleagues. In addition to that, you're still getting started there. Where are you from originally? I'm actually from Belgolate, Florida. Uh, Belgolate and actually South Bay, Florida. Uh, both Belgolate mm-hmm. and South Bay, Florida combined are approximately 20,000 students. Uh, what well, students? Uh, I'm thinking I'm in a classroom. About 20,000 people. Uh, for uh-huh. about seven years, I lived in Belgolate in South Bay, Florida, and I moved to America's Georgia uh, with my mother, brother, and sister. So I've been seven years in one location, seven years in another location. So I've had the opportunity to kind of see uh, the a lot as it relates to life and experience a lot as it relates to meeting different family members and having different experiences that have pre- pretty much helped to frame my context as it relates to my spirituality and actually being a person and becoming a man that I am today. Awesome. And in that regard, your your story, not only your journey did it compel you to write this this amazing memoir. I do have a qu- couple questions though about your background. So you, a lot of folks who are listening, Dr. Johnson is well educated. He is a man of many traits and and much knowledge. Where did you go to school? Where did you do your undergraduate and graduate work? Hey, great. I am a proud graduate of the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University. I earned my <laughs> Bachelor's of Arts in English Literature from Florida State University. I earned a Master's of Arts, and from Clark Atlanta University, I earned a Doctorate of Arts, where I focused primarily on Africana women literature of that time, of the diaspora. So I've been immersed, if you will, into education over the last 11 years, and I thought, I guess mm-hmm. it's not robbery to go back, and I'm actually completing now a graduate certificate in institutional research because I value accountability and student learning outcomes and assessment, and I just want to make sure that as a leader in higher education that I have the skill set that I can lead an institution. That Wow. Well, that was so impressive, and it's beautiful to know that education, and, and I know you agree with this, once you get those degrees, the professional development and learning doesn't stop. We're lifelong learners, and it's so great to hear that you're continuing the tradition in that regard. So why did you choose education? Were there any other well, career know, interests that you had before education, you know, have, or was this the one? I have to be really honest with you. Uh, during my, I would say, my ninth or tenth grade year, I mm-hmm. thought that there were two career paths that I would take. Um, I was always known as the argumentative um, kind of sassy, kind of attitudinal, slick mouth young man. 
So I thought that I would use that and leverage it to becoming an attorney. So initially, I desired to become an attorney, but I also knew that the English field would prepare me for that. But what was so critical is that as I looked at, you know, the role of an attorney and and what that role entailed, I also noticed that many of my teachers of that time were either white, Caucasian, and women, or black and women. And I noticed at that time that there was a shortage, in my mind, I felt, of black men in higher education or K-12, K-12, through and also men that were majoring in the field of English. So mm-hmm. for me, I decided that in order to demystify, if you will, those roles that are prescribed in some um, perspective and some belief that certain roles to men and women, I decided I wanted to demystify that. I wanted to go against the grain and not major in the social science or the sciences. I wanted to major in a field of liberal arts where I can prepare young people, minorities, minority males, to be great writers and be able to articulate what it is mm-hmm. that they desire to become in life, and also how to use that skill set to matriculate to institutions of higher learning. So for me, it was more so just I tested well, of course, in English courses, but I wanted to be in a field where there was a shortage of people that were like me, mm. and that was well important said. to me. And I think that's that says a lot. It, seems, it sounds to me you followed your passion, and in that passion as well is your interest to write. When did you first discover that you had writing interest? You know, I have to give credit to my late aunt, uh, Vanessa Collier. I remember several weekends throughout the uh, the month and staying with her months and uh, years to come before her passing. She would always drag my siblings and my cousins and I to the library. And I did not understand how critical at the time uh, that uh, that experience was to me until I began to really reflect on the text that I read, both nonfiction and fictional works. And to me, I became amazed by the approach to writing for many of the authors. And I began to look at their uh, approach and their use of character analysis and their characterization of plot and summary. And all of those things began to amaze me. And immediately I decided, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can also share a story one day, not knowing that I would actually share my story and it would be mm-hmm. one that would proved to be transformative and one that would help me to heal. So I would have to say that the whole aspect of writing is not something I thought I could do, but introducing me to a library, something that is almost uncommon today, was proved yeah. very critical to my development as a writer. Mm. And that your that story, it just you just triggered something in my own mind. As I was growing up, my mother, I thought all mothers were like Betty Jones until I realized after I got into middle school, that wasn't the case. And she did very similar to what your aunt did for you, Larry, which was introduce you in an, at an early age to the wonderful world of, of, of reading. And in that reading, there is reading it. There is power in reading. It's visual. It's creative thinking. It, it promotes independent thinking. And I thought at, my, at first that this was, at, this was usual behavior. But as I began to, but as I grew older, I realized it wasn't, and I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very grateful to your aunt who provided you that, instilled in you that value as well. And you're absolutely right. The libraries have changed a bit. I was just sharing with my yes. students the other day that gone are the shelves, the, the, the rows and rows of shelves. They're being replaced with, with, with cafes and charging stations for students to study and for people to sit and use and for computer right. multimedia access. 
And so, right. yes, you're right. And with that changes the, the, the value of literacy, too. And so I really appreciate your bringing that up and props to your aunt for that incredible work. Yeah. So you mentioned yeah. you mentor your aunt. So I would assume she's be she's one of the, the influences in your life. But are there any other influences as well or individuals uh, who have inspired you? Or you? Absolutely. I would definitely have to say my family, uh, my uh, brother and sister are definitely an inspiration to me. Uh, as you mm-hmm. know, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this, uh, when I was 11, we lost a, my, our mother. And so mm-hmm. I was 11, my sister was 9, and my brother was 6. And they have been relentless in their pursuit of happiness, in their pursuit of attainment of a credential. And I'm so proud of them that even today, going through many of the challenges and having to not have a mother and having, you know, a more of a surrogate mother in some instances and having to have to go through that loss and that emotional uh, bondage, if you will, and that loss, or maybe even self and that, that paternal figure, they have done great work. Uh, my sister recently uh, finished at University of South Florida, and she's now a medical doctor in internal medicine. Uh, my little wow. brother uh, is now uh, a graduate, of course, of Florida A&M University. Actually, both of them, which I'm so proud of, they both followed my pathway, and they're both graduates of Florida A&M. So to me, that speaks volumes of the example that I have been to them, but also it is a, influences me in that they have continued to persevere. They have continued to do what it takes to be great people, to make contributions. And most recently, my brother took a job in D.C. where he's now mm-hmm. with his new family. So I'm so proud of them. And that, to me, is an influence to let me know that there is something I did that was great, that they mm-hmm. may have looked at me, even the issues that I may have had, because you have to learn from the bad as well. And they learned from those different mistakes that I made earlier in life, and they did not make those mistakes. So they are definitely an influence. I would have to say my godmother, uh, her name Mm -hmm. is Renita Cox. She lives in Belgley, Florida. This lady has been with me since I would say my sixth grade year. And she has helped to cultivate and foster in me the different things I needed to know about life, about financial, mm-hmm. being a, a good businessman, how the importance of credit. She has been that, that rock, if you will, that has kept me and that has helped to really propel me to the level that I am at. Now, there are a host of other people, but I have to name those persons because they were there during those times when I did not quite know what way I should go. But it was the family members and the mentors that I've had, such as my brother and sister, Omega Johnson Ball and Josiah Johnson and Bernita Cox. And lastly, I would say that my mentees, I have seven young men who I talk to daily, and those Mm -hmm. young men to see where they have come from. And to see where mm-hmm. they are today influences me, and that, to me, helps to move forward and to continue to do the thing that I know that I should do, and that's to mentor and be a man of integrity. So those are the things that influence me to be the best me that I can be. Mm, I love the way that was stated. It is so beautiful that in the trials, in the in the moments of struggle, there clearly was a, a, an energy a, a system to help support a mechanism in place to have these children become contributors and not statistics in society, especially for the males, not just for you and, and obviously your sister, your brother too. For for men of color, definitely we have a lot of work that we need to do. And it's beautiful to see that in spite of all the struggle, here you are, Larry, 
and here are your siblings too. You were able to make a difference and now making a contribution back to society. Beautifully, beautiful story. Yes. Beautiful story. Thank you. And for those for those of who are listening now, if you have if you were tuning in for the first time to our show, I'm with the amazing Dr. Larry Johnson, the Associate Dean of English and Journalism at Broward College, and the author of incredible work, Memoirs of a Young Black Scholar, subtitled Surviving and Coping with Loss. And if you'd like to speak to him at any time, please feel free to call us at 347-539-5372. Again, that number is 347-539-5372. And you can email us as well at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. And actually, Larry, there's a question here. So here's a question, and it is from Mildred from New Jersey. So she's sending in the email, and I'm going to read it as read it as I see it being scripted here on, on my screen. Larry, do you have moments when you felt like giving up? I recently lost my mother, and it hurts every day. I feel as though I can't go on. How do you cope? Oh, man, that, that's an awesome question. Thank you so much. Um, you, you know, I have to be totally honest with you. And and many people may not know this, and if I get emotional, do do forgive me because again I am human. But it's the, mm-hmm. the experiences that you learn how to deal with different pressures of life. But many people did not know that losing my mother, I did not grieve. I did not grieve wow. for an entire year. I remember hmm. the experience. I remember seeing her lying in the casket. I remember hmm. the burial. I remember everything so vivid. I remember when she did not come home that day as she normally would. And I also remember her kissing me goodbye and sending me to school. But beyond that experience, I oftentimes contemplated suicide. I Mm. saw it happening in my head. I wondered what family members would say. I wondered who would come to my rescue. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I have continue to deal with those times of loss, and I don't think that that will ever get easy. A Mother's mm-hmm. Day is always difficult for me, and it's only the last three or four years I think I've been able to really uh, grasp the concept that my mom isn't here, she's not coming back. But I understood that though she was not here in the physical, because I'm, I'm very mm-hmm. spiritual, I believe that her essence still rests upon me, if you will. So I've been mm-hmm. able to really cope by being around people who love me, being around persons like my godmother who has become that mother figure for me and to me and for my siblings. So that has helped me to really deal with those difficult times. And and I encourage (laughs) you to be around family, to be around those persons that can uh, see you when you're not saying what it is that you're experiencing and know how to just speak a word possibly or to hug you or to do something to let you know that they are there. So it's important to be around people that understand your struggle, that have been there, because persons that have not been where you have been, they cannot speak intimately to the experiences and to the emotions and to the being broken that you may be experiencing at that time. So that's how I cope. I remain around people who care for me. I stay Mm -hmm. rooted and grounded in my spiritual connection to God because that is what undergirds the essence of who I am that has Mm -hmm. always been my foundation. So that has kept me. And I I appreciate your being so open with us about the work. And Mildred, thank you for an incredible question, because it's a great question that transitions us closely into your work. Larry. So in this memoir, 
this in subtitle itself, because when you look at the first part, the main title, Memoirs of a Young Scholar, if there was nothing else after that, it would automatically lead the reader to assume that this is a work about a, a, a black man's journey into education, post-secondary, or any other educational or spiritual quest. But then when you add the subtitle, Surviving and Coping with Loss, that whole title and the message of the work to a whole other level. So, mm-hmm. so what compelled you to write this book? After my mother's death, I've discovered that I had to do something to keep my mind. To I, I was dealing with a, a lot emotionally because I, I couldn't figure out. I'm 11 years old. I saw my mother every day. Uh, mm-hmm. I just could not cope with the fact that she was no longer coming back. I oftentimes dreamt of her returning and and being allowed one more day in this in space with me and to wake up and mm-hmm. she did not return. So for me to write this work, initially I began to reflect on the experiences and I just wanted to recount the experiences of losing someone that was close to you. But it began to be a little deeper than that for me. I realized that I was at a place of crisis. I hmm. realized that in or- I had to open up about things that I had not dealt with. Mm-hmm. So losing my mother and then within a couple of days of losing my mother, being molested by the person that she entrusted to protect me, that was mm-hmm. a lot for me. Eleven years mm-hmm. old, did not go to counseling from, I would say, age 11 all the way up until out to 30 maybe, I had no type of professional counseling. No one really talked to me and went through the process of what happened, uh, possibly mm-hmm. trying to help me to reconcile the different things that happened. Yes, I had family members. I had aunts and uncles who were there for me to nurture me, but no one sat down to really help to walk me through that experience and to help me to cope with and come up with some type of uh, process whereby I would go through this storm of my life. So the book kind of morphed into more of a recounting and reflecting on experiences to becoming the thing that will help me to be whole. For so Mm. many years, it was as if I had a bandage and I was continuing to clean this wound and place a bandage over something and I was hemorrhaging. I was hemorrhaging. Mm. I was hemorrhaging from a loss of place, a loss of identity, not knowing who I was, how to cope with many of the emotions and many of the feelings until suddenly I reached a point where I had to seek professional help. So the text Mm -hmm. initially started out in a series of chapters. It was chapter one, Mm -hmm. chapter two, so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. But after I realized that my my relationships with people, even my brother and my sister, it took years, if they are listening, it took years for me to really hug them and say, I love you, because I didn't know how to love. I didn't know how mm. to exhibit that because I felt so recluse at times to this old island, as I talk about in the text. But the book mm-hmm. morphed into being a series of sessions that helped me to heal each session was me coming out of that shell, taking myself off of that island and assimilating into a culture of where people love me, where people care about me, so that I can, in fact, be healed and so that I can be balanced. Mm. And I, I just have a follow-up question to that. So do you, do you, did you, as you were growing up, going through all of these, these cycles of emotion, did you have issues with trust? 
in terms of trusting others? Could that have also, because of the fact, I mean, one issue being the loss of your mom, there was also a chapter in the book where I read where you also accounts of, of domestic violence. So a lot mm-hmm. of things that you saw in an early age, did you feel there were issues of trust or distrust, Matt, rather, that may have also impacted your 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 affection towards your siblings? Absolutely, absolutely, Billy. I I did not trust anyone. I went through the motions of trusting, and I did things I thought would uh, make people happy, but inside I did not trust. I was always guarded around everyone, and that really impeded my ability to have uh, normal relationships with friends, normal relationships with family, because I didn't know at any time what uh, that incident or those emotions, those experiences, what they then impede my ability to be open and transparent with my my thoughts and with my expressions of things that I had experienced. And also, I was a young man, so how do you express to people mm-hmm. what happened to you? Because we live mm-hmm. in a society where we are supposed to be machismo and we're supposed to be this, this male-dominated society at times, and that's the perception that we're to act and to do a certain thing. But how do you really express that? So Very good point. that was a sense of, you know, not knowing who you can trust, who you can tell information to, what would be the, the aftermath of that, how would people perceive you once you unveil this other thing that you have carried so many years. So, yes, I, I did distrust people, and it caused me to sometimes be alone because I didn't know who I could trust. Mm. You know, your story reminds me of something I don't, I haven't shared with you and to any of the listeners, so I'd like to share it now. I was in fifth grade. My my mom, uncles, and grandfather bowled in a bowling league. And up until that point, um, I was, I, the family unit that I thought I was born into up until the age of 12 was the family unit that I enjoyed. I was one of eight siblings, youngest of the eight siblings, and I was revered and cared for in every way. But it was that Sunday, and I'll never forget it, Larry. It was a Sunday about this time of the day, and I like to go to the bowling out al- the bowling alley, not necessarily to watch the bowling, but to go play in the arcade game, the uh, video room. And so I went into the arcade room. To right before I got there, my my grandfather looked at me and said, "Remember, at this point, he was t- I thought he was my dad." So he looked at me and said, "There's something I need to tell you. The lady at the house is not your mother." Mm. And it was a gripping moment. I I was speechless. And I said, well, who is? And he confessed that my oldest sister was my mother. Wow. And I I remember I didn't even make it to the game room that day. I remember sitting there looking and just staring at her and staring at everyone. And there was an immediate issue with trust and distrust. And I left that silent for a very, very, very long time. And I have a wonderful relationship with my parents, my grandparents, and a phenomenal relationship with my beautiful mother. And it wasn't her fault at all. This is just what my grandparents told me, that this is what they thought were best because my mom was such an amazing student. And my her grandparents, my great-grandparents, highly revered her. So they just thought that was what was best. But I started questioning things. If I'm the eighth child, then how come my second-generation cousin is my cousin? I should be her uncle. And so mm-hmm. I was a smart kid. And it, it it bothered me. It's not the same as your own incredible story, but it's similar in the sense that this issue of trust, and for men of color, especially black men, we don't have an opportunity to voice these things 
And still right. there's a stigma among us that to go to the doctor and get help, something must be wrong with you. It's, it's, right. it's very, um, there's a challenge to that thought or that notion. And so I'm very right. glad to hear that you chose. At the end of the day, if you're not good to yourself, you can't be good to anyone else. You made the right choice by getting this stuff out. And, and now you committed it. You memorialized it in a phenomenal memoir, which I salute you for. Just thought I would add that Thank there. Thank you and so I much. Do wanna, and I do want to add to folks who are listening, if you'd like to speak to me or to Dr. Johnson, our lines are standing open and standing by at 347-539-5372. Again, that is area code 347-539-5372. And our inbox is open, too. And that email address is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. And Larry, I actually have a question here for you. And this question okay. is coming in from, let's see, Marcos from Washington, D.C. So Marcos has a question. It's none related to your works, but it's related to professional outlook. Because in the midst of all this, People, we sometimes have to remind ourselves we're human. And in the midst of getting these degrees, we still have to live our lives. We still have challenges we're dealing with. We still have stuff out there in the atmosphere. So Marcus's mm -hmm. question is about transitions. And here it goes. Mar Wa Marcos from Washington, D.C. What are the steps I need to take to become a professor? I've been a high school teacher, English teacher, for 10 years and want to make the transition. I have a bachelor's degree only in English. Okay. Great question, Marcos. And I, I applaud you for the work that you have um, done in the K-12 system. Um, you definitely are on the right track. I would certainly encourage you to pursue uh, the master's degree. Most of the regional accrediting bodies, uh, their rule is that you must have a master's degree in the subject matter or a master's degree in 18 graduate hours in the discipline. So that's one of the first things I think that you need to take care of. Uh, next, as you and once you complete the degree, I would look at adjunct opportunities. Uh, most of the times when institutions are hiring, uh, faculty member and we're looking to dynamic faculty, sometimes we look at the people that are already in our camp, if you will, and the great work of being enthusiastic, uh, attending meetings, and doing all the things that the chair or the dean requests of you to do, I think that would make you a great candidate as you're transitioning from the K-12 system to the community college or the university system. But number one, you must focus on the area of study, what is it that you desire to do as it relates to teaching, and also look at the colleges that you're interested in working at and finding out what is the temperament of that particular institution. Uh, some of them may require a master's only. Some may say that you need a terminal degree. So those are some of the things I think you need to really consider, but the master's degree will get you definitely in the door and pursue those adjunct opportunities so that you can kind of get an idea of the political landscape and the culture of higher education. Mm. Wonderful response. And I just also, I, I thought it was very important that you help. A lot of K-12 teachers have that question for you and me a lot, and that is, how do I get started? And the early connections are key. Reaching out, paying a visit, and, and, and being prepared for any opportunities, because sometimes those, those visits are helpful if, we're, if one is available. 
But definitely what you provide is very helpful because it's at least for me, it's it's what I did to get me where I'm at today. And I'm I'm grateful for folks like you, Larry, who gave that type of advice. So Larry, I have a question. I want to go back to the book for a second. And I know that in this in your book you have a you have family who listen. You have a primary audience. There's always a universal audience, which are those who are outside of your family unit. But when you start writing about things that are family oriented or start speaking about it, I'm sure that that may, may create alarm, if not concern, if not support above all for your work. So has have you received any feedback from family regarding your memoir? Billy, that is a great question. Anytime you step outside of the box, and you mm-hmm. do something differently than what is uh, what should be in some um, eyes that you should do, you will al- always encounter some type of barrier. So mm-hmm. my family did not know I was writing the book. Only my immediate family knew, and I expressed it to um, some mentors, and uh, my mentees, of course, they knew. Because I have to say this, they are pretty much the foundation that I did this partly because of them, because my experiences, I had to realize contextually why I went through what I went through and what was its ultimate purpose. And as I mm-hmm. linked up with those seven young men, it manifested and I, I understood why I had to experience that. So I go back to say that, yes, the family members after the book was released, I did receive calls. Uh, some of the calls were not pleasant uh, because mm-hmm. it was, how dare you um, mm-hmm. say such things? Uh, did you not believe that, you know, we supported or believed you? Um, I also received calls from other family members who were a part of my life who mm-hmm. felt that they were slighted because they weren't mentioned in the mm-hmm. text. But at the end of the day, when I did the book release in Atlanta, Georgia, the family Mm -hmm. members that were supposed to be there, and I make no apologies about this, they were there. Mm. And I don't believe the family members who responded indifferent to the text really understood the emotional and psychological uh, damage that had been done and I don't believe that they were at a place where they could help me during that time. So mm-hmm. this was my way. This was my way to express myself. This was my way to be healed because I right. would have continued in life the same way that I was when I was 11, the same emotions, the same questions. So I had to get it out. I had to express myself. Some family members said, well, how do you know that these experiences happen? You were young. You were, but I was 11 years old, so I, I was f- fully aware of everything that I mm-hmm. experienced, everything that I saw. But I believe at the end of the day, my family should know me enough now to understand that I would not do anything to discredit anything that anyone has done for me because I believe that everyone that has entered my life, be it an aunt, be it an uncle, be it a cousin, they were there for a purpose and a reason, and they helped to uh, enrich and impart in me the skills that I needed to get to this level. But I think sometimes with African-American families, we tend to not want to reveal things that we believe will bring shame, and especially Mm -hmm. if you're from a uh, family where, you know, 
they're devout, uh, Pentecostal or Christian, or however we want to uh, explain it, that also comes with its own barrier because I come from a family where I only know church. My mom right. reared me in the church. I've been in the church since her womb to even now. And sometimes revealing things and having family members who say, well, you pray about it and let God deal with it. But sometimes there are things that you have to pray about, and there are also things that you need to pray and you need to talk about. And I just mm-hmm. don't believe God in his infinite wisdom would have persons skilled with this knowledge of how to help persons through traumatic incidences or experiences and not be able to go to them, even as someone that has been in the church. So I did receive several different calls and text messages, but at the end of the day, I had to realize that this was not about them. It was about my wholeness. It was about me finding a place of balance and finding souls. Oh, thank you so much. And we actually have a caller, Larry, on the air live. Hello, caller. You're listening to Everyday Folks. BJ Speaks with the amazing Dr. Larry Johnson, Associate Dean and Author. Who are we speaking with? Hi, this is Capri. How are you all doing today? Hello. Very well, Capri. I um I wanted to to have uh, I guess we to ask you a question regarding your your um your your memoirs. Um, first of all, let me say that what you did I think was a very good thing and a courageous thing because people I think often don't understand the person when when you need help you have to get it how you feel you need to get it whether it's writing a book you know going to counseling or talking to someone so I don't think that you know I think what you did was great and and I don't think that anybody that goes through anything owes anyone uh, any explanation or apology for healing themselves mhm and um, also, but you said you, you, you're a mentor um, to uh, several young men. How do you get your story out or, you know, your, your, your book? How do you get it out to others that may, um, you know, have similar situations or um, young men that are just sometimes, you know, going through different things at, at certain stages of life, especially when they're younger, um, how do you reach them? Because, uh, like I said, I know you have mentors, or you know, you you mentor some young men. But aside from those, do you um, like you know visit schools or you know are there certain organizations that you're a part of that you share this with? Great, that's a great question, and thank you so much for your feedback. To be totally honest with you, when I wrote the book, I thought about you know how would I market it and what are what are some of the outlets, and because I was so focused on um, Publishing the text so that I can move to that next level of my my mental, uh, if you mean stability. I have not uh, done a great job of marketing, and that is something that's an opportunity moving forward. But one of the one of the great things about being higher in higher education, I'm able to meet high school students, and that's a part of my job with bridging partnerships and closing the gap of achievement. So I'm able to meet high school students, and I'm able to share uh, different things that the college is doing, but also I can share my story as well. So that's definitely a an avenue. And I also have uh, social media that I use as well to uh, 
share the text, and also on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well, and I definitely uh, market the text there. But that is a that's a good question. I am a part of organizations wherein I mentor um, Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, where I'm able to also uh, share my experiences as well with other young people. But it's definitely an opportunity for me to partner with different organizations, um, and I've been contacted by uh, many of the um, juvenile delinquent facilities who have asked me about the text and would I come in and talk with their young men. And I've definitely said, yeah, I, I will, because I think everyone, those young men will especially benefit. But to your point, it's an opportunity out there. And as my schedule, because it's so fluid with doing the administrative side, that I've kind of taken the back seat with that thing that has helped me to move forward, there are opportunities, and I am seeking those this year. And if you know of any, definitely share those with um, Billy, and I'll definitely consider them. Super. Okay, thank you very much. All right, and thank you. you Thank you for listening, Kip. We appreciate your time. Not a problem. And, Larry, in fact, for those who who are listening now, just want to remind everyone that if you're interested in, in, in connecting with Larry beyond the show, of course, definitely do tune in in the next couple of days. We'll be placing a link under my author page, which is Billy Paul Jones, www.billypauljones.com. And there is a page alone dedicated to who I'm supporting and all the great folks who are interviewed on in BJ Speaks and folks have other things going on at their respective locales. I like to showcase their works and provide links to them. So, Larry, I'll definitely be linking up you in order to get that information so that folks can have a bridge to you after these conversations. Great, great. Thank you. There is another question coming in, Larry. The emails are coming in, and this is from Estrella from Miami. And her question is as follows. She must be reading my mind here because this question is almost a follow-up to what I wanted to ask you. Would there be a follow-up to your book or any other books? You know, Estrella uh, and, and Billy, that's a great question. Uh, one of my close friends who read the book, he uh, he mentioned that to me. He said after he read it, he just felt like there was something more that needed to be said. And I plan on writing a second text or an addendum to that text, but I believe that there are more experiences that I need. Uh, I like to look at the text in different phases. There was a certain phase in my life where I was broken and I needed to be healed. But now I'm moving into a different aspect of my professional career where I also want to look back on how all of those experiences prepared me for the rigors of that administrative uh, career that I ultimately desire. So to answer your question, yes, I do plan to write a second text, and I will probably do more academic text in the future, but I definitely want to build on that text because I do believe I kind of leave the reader wondering what next, what's going to happen, where is he now, and I would like to reflect on that experience in the years to come. So there will be another text. Thank you so much. Beginning writers have a a challenge. I always say that getting first you have to commit and you have to make time for for anything that's important to you. And the same would apply for any passion. In this case, it comes to it it pertains to writing. So, what advice do you give, Larry, to other writers, beginning writers, and folks who have yet to publish their book but they have these incredible stories that want to be told? What advice do you give them in terms of getting started? I will say, as I tell my students when we're talking about the pre-writing process, and one of the skills that we teach our students is the art of free writing. 
And I will say free write. Sit down and just write. Everything that comes to your mind, write it. And then you go back and you begin to compartmentalize and you begin to add context to your writing, but also come up with a good framework and an outline as to how you would like this text to progress from beginning to end. Because that's what I did. I just sat down and I began to reflect on my experiences and all of the things that I went through, and I just wrote. And then I went back and I began to kind of form the text and form the story that I wanted to tell to my audience. That's awesome. And, and also, too, making it, like you said, just writing and writing often. And don't be afraid to connect with a, a community of other writers. I found here in South Florida, uh, I'm a native, as you know, Larry. And one of the things that I find most challenging sometimes is finding a community of writers who agree or, or align to my own philosophy of, of, of artistic expression, or at least the business aspect. And so what I've done over the past two months I made a commitment in 2016 that I wanted to create such a community. So I began to create this writer's group. And we don't even have a name. It's just a network that we get together the first or second Monday of each month at a, at a restaurant. And we bring together a, 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 a host of individuals, not only writers, but artists as well. And we just talk and share about share the things that are going on in our worlds. If individuals want to bring in a story or share, surrender a story for review and have a peer conversation, they could. And if folks want to come in and get business aspects. And I, I find that it's been very helpful in motivating me in order to do what I need to do and to, to continue to progress in our art form because often sometimes people still see, hey, how can you do that? You don't make a whole lot of money from it. And, and, and it's not about the money. It's about the expression. It's about the message. And there is still power in literature. And I find that it's, it's hard finding those communities. And I offer that to you, by the way, as, the, as our next sessions come up, I'll welcome you to those conversations as well. Because I think you would provide and lend uh, a beautiful uh, perspective that I think this group also needs and also you could gain from it as well. And so that brings me to the question about future goals. You are on the up and up, I say. I've I've had the privilege of watching you as 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 a dean. I see you I've seen a bit in your classroom. You're a phenomenal professor. So what's next for you? What are some of the things that you have in store that you want to do or yet to accomplish? That's a great question, Billy. Thank you for that. Um, well, many probably do not know this, but I ultimately desire to be a community college president. So each uh, move I've made from the Department Chair of Arts and Sciences and Learning Support to now being the Dean of English at Broward College, it's preparing me for that ultimate role. And mm-hmm. I just don't desire to be a president for the whole idea of the the lights and the camera and the action that I think a lot of people see because I know behind all of that is pressure and loneliness at times and having to deal with a lot of political pressures. But Mm -hmm. my ultimate reason for desiring to be a college president is so that I can advocate and speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. As I travel and I present at different conferences and I hear conversations and I've attended institutes, I've learned that in order to be a great leader, you must also know how to uh, be transparent, you must learn how to be compassionate, and you must have an investment in the population that you're serving. So initially, I mentioned how I have a passion for 
educating diverse populations, minority males. So I seek to work in institutions that will help me to work with underrepresented, low socioeconomic status, uh, students that have come from all walks of life, and to see their lives transform, that is ultimately what will give me happiness. As a senior executive leader, a VP, or even a campus president, or eventually a college president, those are my goals, but it's not framed in the context of all that comes with it, but seeing people come from nothing in some cases to being great leaders, uh, to being great uh, advocates in the role of higher education or in education in general. Great response. And Larry, you have a couple more questions coming in. And we're coming down to the last few minutes of of our show. So if you have a question that you'd like to get into, Larry, or to me, you're welcome to call in at 347-539-5372. That is 347-539-5372. And as well, you may email us at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com, everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. So actually, Larry, there are three questions here. So I'm going to give you the first one. It's from Stedman. And Stedman's question is as follows. He states, your book focuses on surviving and coping with loss. What would you describe as your biggest gain after surviving and coping with loss? That is a great question. That is a great question, uh, Stedman. Stedman is actually one of the young men that I mentee, so his question is very loaded, and he learned from the best, I see. Mm. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I would have to say that um, I have gained the capacity to be able to weather any storm, uh, mm-hmm. it no matter what the experience has been, be it uh, be it a, a relationship, uh, be it mm-hmm. something that has happened at work, understanding the political landscape and climate of working in higher education, the text for me has given me what Angela Duckworth would call grit, perseverance, mm-hmm. diligence, mm-hmm. being able to not be rattled but to remain calm and to really focus on how you are going to get something accomplished or how you're going to work through a difficult time. So if nothing else, the process that I have gone through with the text and even the experience has given me the, if you will, the the grit to understand how to deal with a bad situation and how to turn that bad situation into something that can be used to impact somebody's life. Great response, and thank you, Stabman, for listening to Everyday Folks Radio and that wonderful question of Dr. Johnson. Here's another question for you, Larry, and it's coming in from Sid, S-I-D, from Tampa, Florida. And you kind of answered this, but maybe you could refocus your long-term goals into this question, and it is, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oh, great question. Well, I I see myself uh, applying to a presidency, um, hopefully either applying or have um, been hired as a president. But I also see Mm -hmm. myself working toward uh, institutions and organizations that will promote education amongst our underrepresented populations. Uh, Many people do not know this about me, but a couple of years ago I founded a nonprofit and mm-hmm. it's been called. It's entitled MOLA, Majestic Overcomers Learning Academy. And my idea behind MOLA is to 
help those young students who were not able to move throughout their high school and to help them get a GED, to help them to assimilate into society, give them the skill set that they need to in order to move forward into the workforce or transition to a community college or a university. So I hope to have moved that agenda forward to have a site or two uh, wherever I'm uh, stationed, if you will, so that that organization can do exactly what I what was done for me and to help cultivate and provide enriching experiences to help young people who persons have looked at as, you know, will not be able to be successful based upon the things that they've experienced, but provide, be the conduit, if you will, whereby they will move forward and be great individuals. So that's one of my long-term goals beyond being president, but being a part of organizations, talking to young people, going to high schools, and really sharing my experiences in hopes that someone will hear that story and they will, their lives will be changed as a result of that. Awesome. And one last question is from Robert from Las Vegas. Thank you, Robert. The question is as follows, Larry. Ever thought of doing a television show? You make a good host. <laughs> uh, actually, I have not. <laughs> I have not at all, Brett. Uh, you know, I am I am always open to opportunities. Uh, one of the things that I, I do know is that as a college president, sometimes you are a tap to be a part of different uh, type of uh, experiences, mm -hmm. and sometimes that may lend to television. It may lend to radio. So I cannot say I will not. I will say that I'm definitely open to it, and it, as long as that channel is one that will allow me to maintain my integrity and who I am as a man and who I am as an educator, I would definitely support being a part of that platform. Awesome. And the last question of the day. So, Larry, you've, we've had a, an amazing conversation, and believe it or not, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing that's true of, of all the great things you said, and it's this, is that you are a man of, of, of an incredible journey. You haven't stopped, and there's so much in you. You have so much energy and so much great work to do. So what is your life philosophy? What keeps you ticking and going? Well, that is a great great question and you know sometimes you don't think about things until you're actually put in a place where you have to really think but mm -hmm. if I were to say what my life philosophy would be I would say that it's about seeking after those things that bring me happiness and balance while mm -hmm. also being the conduit for someone else's success Ooh, that's like my that. philosophy is that copywritten? <laughs> I love it's it. Not. It is beautiful. It, it, it's, it's not. But that that that's my that's my philosophy. I, I believe that hey, going back to an original statement, everything that I have experienced in life, I am not one of those persons where I can say, Woe is me. This happened right. to me. So as a result I have to do this. I have to react this way. I believe that every experience from losing my mother from the to the molestation to witnessing all of the things that I discuss in the text, and I, I definitely think everyone that has not read it should read it, you will find that, for me, it's not about uh, drowning in a pity party, but it's right. about seeing how that experience can help someone. And I believe that I was predestined to go through different life challenges so that I can be that person that can stand and tell young people, older persons, traditional and non-traditional students, 
yes, that may this may be your plight now, but this is my this was my story, and I was able mm-hmm. to overcome. So that to me is what's most important. Well, Larry, I want to say thank you so much for a, an incredible story and for surrendering your time and and lending us a, a chance to peer into your world. Uh, as your colleague, I am so just delighted to work with you and learn from you. And I think many others who are just tuning in, I do hope that you will pick up the book. I'm going to place a link to it on my own author page and as well as on the Everyday Folks platform. Go out and read this incredible memoir, the memoir of a black scholar, of a young black scholar surviving and coping with loss by the amazing Dr. Larry Johnson. As well, come and seek him at the campus. If you're living in South Florida, you can pop in or shoot him an email as well at Broward College. But Larry, I wish you all the best and know this, that I always have your back. I I like what you're about and where you're going, and I want to be part of that. So continue to do the great work, and thank you for your time. And I will be calling you back again because we'd like to do a follow-up in in, in in the month, if not the year to come, to see where you're at and how we at Everyday Folks can help be part of that process. Great. Thank you so much, Billy. And thank you, listeners. I greatly appreciate it. You are very welcome, Larry. And so for those of you who just listened to our incredible show, thank you so much. I'm looking at the media here, and I should have said this to Larry before we I let him go, but we have over 1,150 1, listeners who are tuning in at this very time. So I want to say thank you to all. And just a few announcements of things. There are a few other emails that are coming into the show. Uh, of support. And this is, comes from Mario, who's in South Florida. And Mario's email reads as follows. My parents, it's related, by the way, to the show that we taped about a month ago with Kareem Fletcher, the artist. He says, my parents never supported my talents in the arts due to the low income economic return. I guess I proved them wrong. Art changes lives and brings light to darkness. Thank you for sharing Kareem's story. Your interviews have an NPR feeling, which I really enjoy. Have a great week. Thank you so much, Mario, for that feedback. And there are a couple of others as well. The love does help. This is from Olga from from South Florida. Keep doing what you do. Very inspiring. When is the live video feed? Good question, Olga. Actually, later this year, it is my hope that from time to time, our our listeners will also become viewers and be able to see the live broadcasts of Everyday Folks BJ Speak series at various times and locations. So do look out for that. And I promise to provide more info as it comes up. And there is one last question that comes from Chris. Can I be a part of the show? I don't think my life is that interesting. And Chris, here's what I share to you. Yes. In fact, just remember that in the platform, what I do in my own work, Everyday Folks, I write about and, and, and engage with everyone. So don't feel that your life does not have value because you have value and purpose not just purpose for for my stories, but purpose for everyone to hear. We all are connected in some way. We're all connected in some incredible way. And so therefore it is important that you don't don't see yourself as not having the story. It's not all about the accolades or the successes that whatever one defines a success that allows you to have a moment for a spotlight. I'd love to talk to you. So do shoot me an email at everydayfolksradio at, um, at gmail.com, everydayfolks listen at gmail.com, either of the two, and let's have a follow-up conversation about that. I would definitely like to have you on the show. And so, folks, this brings us to an end, to close to our close. I want to say thank you to all of you, first and foremost, Dr. Larry Johnson. Thank you for your time and for your commitment and all the great things that you're doing. 
we just adore you and, and wish you the best. And I do want to announce as well to all of our listeners, coming up on April, April 4th, we're going to be launching a contest at Everyday Folks Radio, and it's called It's, it's Time First Line. And there's more to come on that. You'll start seeing some promos on my website and also in some of the forthcoming shows about it. So I do hope that you'll tune in and be a part of that process. There's actual prize. You will win a prize if you participate. So thank you for your continued support and all that we do here at Everyday Folks. And at this time, I want to say thank you for listening. Enjoy your weekend and tune in next Sunday at 3 p.m. for more great guests. Take care of yourselves.